perhaps you've seen the musical Wicked. Anybody here seen the show Wicked? It's been here at St. Louis at the Fox uh, a few times. Uh, the musical, it's based on the book, and it tells the backstory of the Wicked Witch of the West uh, from The Wizard of Oz. Maybe you've seen The Wizard of Oz. And as we learn in the musical, uh, the Wicked Witch, she didn't start out so wicked. She was actually uh, just a normal girl named... Elphaba. Elphaba, right. Uh, but she was bullied because of her green skin, and she was accused of committing a crime that she didn't really commit. But as a result of all the mistreatment, Elphaba comes to accept her identity as a wicked witch, and she slowly becomes the wicked witch that everybody kind of always thought she was. Now, our culture has always had this weird fascination with wicked witches. A witch uh, is a, a woman who draws on evil powers to perform evil deeds in the world. Uh, wicked witches have always been popular in the media and in our collective imagination. Some of the oldest fairy tales we learned as children warned us of, of wicked witches living in the woods with their warts and pointy hats, looking for a chance to, you know, throw us in the oven. Witches personify evil in the world. Now, why are we talking about wicked witches? This is a dark way to start a sermon. Well, because it kind of fits our sermon series that we're in right now. Uh, we're in a series. We've got two more weeks of this series. The series is called Sin. What is it really? Uh, sin, as you know, it's this big word that we uh, Christians talk a lot about. Uh, and sin is a problem. Sin is what has ruined our planet. Sin ruins our relationships. Sin corrupts our souls. Sin brings great dysfunction in our family. Sin is a problem. And we want to understand what sin is. We want to understand what sin is so that we can glorify God who rescues us from it. And so also we can uh, cooperate with the Holy Spirit who wants to rid us of it. So we've been talking about sin. Uh, trying to understand what it is. What is sin? Uh, but as we found in our study on, on sin, the Bible doesn't really define sin. Uh, it's not a theology textbook, the Bible. Uh, the Bible describes sin. The Bible uses stories and images and, and pictures to help us understand what kind of sin is like. And we've learned a lot of things that sin is kind of like. Sin is like desire. Sin is like guilt. Sin is like wandering. Sin is like pollution, corruption. Sin is like disease. And we also learn in the Bible that sin is like wickedness. We see this all over scripture. The Bible, the, the Greek and the Hebrew word for wickedness, the, the Bible is written in Hebrew and in Greek, and those Greek words for wickedness, they occur nearly 500 times in Scripture. The authors of Scripture continuously describe sin as wickedness. Like, for example, in Psalm 36, I have a message from God in my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. There's no fear of God before their eyes. In their own eyes, they flatter themselves too much to detect or hate their sin. The words of their mouths are wicked and deceitful. They fail to act wisely or to do good. To be a sinner is to be wicked. To be wicked is to be a sinner. Jesus even uses the language of wickedness. Uh, Jesus calls his opponents, the Pharisees, he calls them a wicked generation. And Jesus talks about a time in the future when an angel will come to distinguish, to divide between the righteous and the wicked. 
Jesus tells a story about a guy who buried his talents in the ground instead of investing them, and the guy's master comes and sees that he buried his talents in the ground, and what does he call him? He calls him a wicked servant. So I know when we hear the word wicked, what do we think of? We think of witches, when he hats. And to be sure, quick etymology lesson for you, the, the word wicked does actually come from the old English word for witch. The old English word for witch is wicca which is where we get the word wicked. So originally, maybe, to be wicked meant to be witch. But, not anymore. To be wicked doesn't mean to be witch. It means to be a sinner. It it means to be a human being. In fact, let me go ahead and define wickedness this way. To be wicked means to be evil in principle or practice. It means to be opposed to good. And actively working against good in the world. It means to elevate your own wishes and desires over that which God would want for us and whether or not it harms other people. And in this sense, we are all wicked. We might not have green skin. We might not ride on broomsticks. Although I don't know what to do with your Friday nights. But we are all wicked. So I want to talk to you about wickedness this morning. Yay, fun. And I want to talk to you about wickedness by taking you to one of the strangest stories in the Bible. One of the most bizarre and perplexing incidents in Scripture. By the way, this is my kind of sermon. Musical theater and strange Bible stories. (laughs) Combined together. It's like PBJ for me. I want to take you to one of the first times in which wickedness makes an appearance on earth. Uh, The story has some very interesting things to teach us about the wicked world in which we live, and far more importantly, how we can escape it. I want to tell you the story of the Nephilim. The story comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 6. Let me go ahead and read it to you, after which we will discuss it. Here it is. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them, they were the heroes of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Maybe you know this story. It's a mysterious story from a long time ago. 
The story takes place just a handful of generations after the creation of the earth. So in the story, people have just started to multiply as, as God had instructed, but, but things go off the rails fast. According to the author, something weird starts happening quickly. He writes that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. The sons of God even had children with these women, and these children are referred to as the heroes of old, men of renown. And this all takes place when the Nephilim, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. Next verse. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. Now, that word Nephilim, it's a, it's a really interesting Hebrew word. Uh, literally, the word Nephilim, it's translated as fallen giants. So in the story in Genesis, it takes place during a mysterious time when fallen giants wander the land. What? That's interesting. And then during this time, a group of individuals called the sons of God are marrying and having children with the daughters of men. Also interesting. And the situation is so wrong that God regrets having created mankind in the first place. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. Also interesting. In fact, it seems odd, doesn't it, that God would have any regrets at all? I mean, isn't he all-knowing? Didn't he not know that this was going to happen? Is God allowed to have regrets? Talks about it like he didn't know it was going to happen. I mean, does God ever regret going to McDonald's? Oh my gosh, I didn't know that was going to happen. But that's what the Bible says. God regrets creating mankind, so here's what God does. He puts some limits on their wickedness. He says, first of all, he says, my spirit, it's not going to contend with humans forever. Their days are going to be 120 years. Now, we don't really know. Is that like 120 years until I like destroy everything? Or is he sort of delimiting their, their age at 120 years? Is that sort of his way of controlling their wickedness? If they live to be 800, they're going to get really, really, really wicked. But at 120, it's like not quite as wicked. I don't know. On top of that, though, God resolves to destroy everything. I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created. He decides to recreate the earth to start over by flooding it. But he does hatch a rescue plan. He hatches a plan to rescue humanity through the family of one righteous guy, guy by the name of Noah. So like I said, interesting story. We're going to talk about some of the details of the story this morning, but I didn't pick it because it's strange. I picked the story because it has a lot to teach us about sin as wickedness. That's what the author of Genesis says the problem was on earth, human wickedness. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become. And we learn a lot from the story about wickedness. What do we learn? What we learn? Four things. First, we learn that wickedness takes what it wants. We can just, just takes what it wants. How does the situation start? Well, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. This is what wickedness is. Wickedness is the desire to take what you want according to your own choosing. Regardless of whether or not God wants that for you, you just take what you choose. Oh, I want that, and I want that, and I want that, and I want that. As you can imagine, this is not a good way to live your life. This is how children live their lives. They take what they want. This is how criminals live their lives. They take what they want. But this is wickedness. 
And this is how we live too. We take what we want, whether or not God wants that for us and whether or not it's good for other people. We just take what we want. We take whatever we choose. We might not do this in big, violent ways. We might not take young women that don't belong to us, although there are people who do that. Maybe you're familiar with the report that just came out about the Southern Baptists protecting preachers and church leaders who preyed on women and children for decades while the denomination actively covered it up. These people just took what they wanted. Now, we might not do that, but we do it in other ways. What do we take? Well, we take another look at that pretty girl at the gym. We take our own time getting to where we need to be, even though it's an inconvenience to other people. We take our money from God that he gives it to us to give back to him, and then we don't do that. Uh, we, we take Sunday morning off. I'm going to take the morning off. Because, you know, I'm just sleeping. We take that extra deduction on our taxes we probably don't deserve. We take a cheap shot at someone who isn't around to defend themselves. We take time off from work without clocking out. We take that last piece of cake or pizza or that fourth beer that we really don't need. These are not minor little moral mishaps. This is us taking what we want. Regardless of whether or not God wants it for us, and regardless of whether that's good for other people, it's us taking what we want. This is wickedness. What else do we learn about wickedness from the story? Well, we learn that wickedness comes from beyond. Wickedness takes what it wants, and wickedness comes from beyond. Let's talk a little bit about this whole sons of God, daughters of men thing. So the story describes a situation in which sons of God were marrying and having children with daughters of men. What? Does that mean? What is happening? Well, there's lots of debate among Bible scholars about this. I mean, who even are these sons of God? Everybody agrees that the daughters of men were women. Uh, But the sons of God is a far more mysterious term. Uh, There are primarily two interpretations. Some believe that this phrase, sons of God, is best interpreted, 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 as rulers of the day, uh, warriors, kings. And what were these rulers, these warriors, these kings doing? Well, well they were, maybe they were just taking in marriage whomever they wanted. I'm, I want you, and I want you, and I want you, and I want you. You be my harem. The, the problem with this interpretation is that that Hebrew phrase for sons of God, uh, I, think, I believe it's bene Elohim, and the, the phrase is used elsewhere in the scriptures, and it, it never means like rulers, the other problem is that this act actually happens quite frequently in Scripture. You know, men taking whatever women they want. Um, but God doesn't, like, destroy the earth every time that happens. So something uniquely bad is happening at this moment. So another possibility is that the sons of God refers to some kind of supernatural being. So in the Bible, that's actually what the phrase Bene Elohim means, it means supernatural beings under the authority of God. These supernatural beings could be angels, they could be fallen angels, they could be demons, we're not really sure, but but they are in a class of divine being distinct from us, and these supernatural beings were somehow, somehow bridging the supernatural natural divide and copulating with human women, having children that were fundamentally non-human, so earth was slowly being populated by supernatural Hybrid children, honestly, I get it, that's weird. Supernatural hybrid children. 
I mean, are we living in some sort of sci-fi horror flick right now? Supernatural hybrid children? But set aside the oddity of that for a second. Remember that the Bible comes to us from a different time and a different place, and it challenges us with a worldview that us moderns aren't always comfortable with. Now, we have to deal with that one way or another, but this interpretation, this interpretation does at least make more sense in the context of the story. I mean, if the human race was slowly being corrupted by supernatural evil forces, of course God is going to start over. Humanity was being fundamentally corrupted. Now, you can accept that or not, but what does it have to teach us about wickedness? Well, this is my point. Wickedness comes from beyond. Don't get me wrong. We're all sinners. We're all deeply sinful from the inside out. I mean, we're lazy. We're greedy. We're sinful. We're lusty. We're we're rude. We're impatient. We're angry. Sin comes within. But also, we live in a wicked world filled with supernatural, wicked forces vying for our soul. We live in a universe with spiritual beings trying to corrupt the earth through us. We are not alone in the universe. It's not just like God and us. The Bible describes a highly populated, invisible spiritual world that we are a part of. Jesus warns us of the wicked one. He always warns, Paul warns his churches not to give the devil and his wickedness a foothold in our lives. And as he writes to the Ephesians, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Where does wickedness come from? It comes from within, but it comes from beyond. It works to infiltrate our world. It works to poison our lives. How does it do this? It does it in all the ways. It distracts us from godliness. It keeps us too busy and occupied to pay attention to the Lord. It sows seeds of discord and conflict in our relationships and families. It leads us from truth into error. And it does this invisibly, sometimes imperceptibly. I mean, the devil doesn't want to be seen. The devil does his best work in the shadows. And when he does make an appearance... It's different from what you'd think. How does the Bible describe the devil? It's an angel of light. He's beautiful. Until he gets in your mind and destroys you. Honestly, this should terrify us. This should terrify us that we live in a supernatural world filled with invisible beings bent on destroying us. It reminds me of what one preacher, Erwin McManus, said to his children one night. Uh, when putting his kids to bed one night, his, his son looked up and asked him, he, maybe he'd heard something in church that morning, said, Daddy, are there demons in the world? And McManus said, well, <clears throat> yes, son, there are. Uh, and they're invisible. And they want to kill you. <laughs> Good night. <laughs> no, they had some follow-up conversations. But he didn't sugarcoat it. There is a devil, and he is actively seeking to work through our lives to copulate, to reproduce. The Apostle John 
warns us against becoming children of the devil. This might even be a reference to Genesis 6. And that's what I want you to consider this morning. The sin that we deal with in our lives, it doesn't just come from within. It comes from beyond. And we invite it in. We copulate with it. We reproduce it. We lie down and we snuggle with it. We spoon with evil. Like witches, we conjure it and cast it into the world all around us. Now, to be sure, we can be protected from evil. In Christ, we don't need to fear it. But my point here this morning is that we cannot deny that it's real. And it's trying to lead us astray. Which brings me to the next thing we learn about wickedness from the story. Wickedness takes what it wants. Wickedness comes from beyond. And also, wickedness spreads throughout. One of the most shocking verses in the story comes from verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. And that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Only evil all the time. We know this is at least a slight hyperbole because at the end of the story, who appears? Noah, and he's a righteous man. But even though it's just a slight exaggeration, it might not have been much of one. Every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. I mean, when you have demons copulating with human women, that's what you're going to get. The author is describing the great totality of wickedness that had spread into every person. Every inclination of the human heart was only evil all the time. There was officially no hope. Now, I'm sure you would not fault me for concluding that perhaps, perhaps, we have reached that point. And if we haven't reached the point at which every inclination of the human heart is only evil all the time, we're getting close. I don't know about you, but I am exhausted and traumatized and saddened by the never-ending cascade of bad news that we keep seeing every day. I am exhausted by mass shootings. I am exhausted by violent police attacks. I am exhausted by Vladimir Putin. I am exhausted by Chinese genocide. By church bombings. There was another one in Africa this week. I am exhausted by street riots and abortion and sexual immorality and conspiracy theories and sex trafficking and media hypocrisy and corporate greed. I am exhausted by a world that seems always evil all the time. But in this sense, I also exhaust myself. I am part of this planet. I have seen it in my heart. I know that I am part of the problem. My heart bends toward evil as much as the next witch. I mean, I can't do a good thing without hoping that I get recognized for it. Pride rules my heart. I can't admire something that somebody else has without, like, coveting it for myself. Greed rules my heart. I can't offer someone constructive criticism without just sounding judgmental. I can't be generous without expecting something in return in my heart. I can't take responsibility for my job without it turning me into a stressed-out workaholic. Even the best things I do are corrupt at their core. 
So the problem is that not, not that wickedness has like infiltrated the world. The problem is that wickedness has infiltrated me. But the problem is also that wickedness has infiltrated you. Wickedness has penetrated every part of your heart. Do you see this? Do you believe that about yourself? Do you see that as a problem? Because it is. It's a big one. You know what's a big problem? Because it's the last thing we learn about wickedness. We learn the story of wickedness takes what it wants, comes from beyond, spreads throughout. And lastly, we learn that wickedness will be judged. God loves his creation too much to let it suffer at the hand of wickedness forever. So in the story, he resolves to start over. I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. Now that's, you know, what are the, the animals and the birds and the creatures, what do they do? Are they like part of the wicked world? What the author is describing here is an uncreation when God created the world in Genesis 1, what does he do? He parts the waters and the land comes up and then he creates the living creatures on the land. And what's he doing in the flood? He's folding the water back in and he's just undoing what he did. All the creatures, the land, he's undoing what he did. He's wiping it clean. Like you wipe a hard drive, like you wipe a dry erase board, he's wiping it clean, he's starting it over. This was God's judgment. He destroyed what he created so that he could start over through Noah. Noah was apparently the one redeemable figure on earth in those days. So he has Noah build a boat for him and his family and a remnant of animals. And after the floodwaters recede, Noah and his family start over again in a garden with the animals. Does this sound familiar? Noah and his family in a garden with the animals. It's creation 2.0. But you know what happens. Noah and his family prove to be just as wicked as the wicked human-demon hybrids God destroyed. Noah spreads his own wicked seed around the earth. Wickedness that has been spreading since. We are living in Noah's wake. Now there's a hidden lesson for us in the story of Noah. What is it? The lesson is that we need to be rescued from God's judgment, but we need someone greater than him. We need a savior greater than Noah. If you remember Jaws, the movie? We're going to need a bigger boat. And we have one in Jesus. Jesus came as the Noah we need. He offers us a spot on the boat. He offers an escape from God's judgment on the wickedness of the world. This is what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. That's what Jesus did. The Son of God came to earth to die for our sins on a cross. The cross is our lifeboat. It's our way of escape. By believing in what Jesus did on the cross, dying for our sins, we can be saved from the next and the greater judgment. Because one of the things the Bible is very, very, very clear about is that just as God judged the world once for its wickedness, he's going to do it again, more permanently. But the cross is our boat. It's our escape. It's our raft. But not only that, the cross is our path to goodness. You see, God doesn't just want to rescue you from his wrath. God wants to change you. He doesn't just want to rescue wicked people so that they can continue to be wicked, like Noah. He wants to change you. He wants to make you different. He wants to take the wicked witch and turn you into a good one. This is why Jesus came. 
Jesus didn't just come to make a way of escape so that we could live forever in our wickedness. <laughs> Jesus came to make a way to be transformed. As Paul writes to Titus, Jesus appeared to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. That's what God wants to happen in our lives. He wants to transform us into people who are not eager to do wicked, but are eager to do good. Now, how does that happen? How does God take wicked witches like you and I and turn us into good ones? Well, let me tell you, before we close, let me tell you how God does that. How God turns wicked people into good people. And let me tell you, by way of a song. A song. Ready? No, I'm not, I'm not going to sing this song. I'm going to have somebody else come up and sing in a second. I told you earlier, back to Wicked, I told you earlier that in the musical Wicked, uh, the, the Wicked Witch of the West ultimately gives in to her wicked impulses. Uh, well, the situation, if you've seen the show, the situation is more complicated than that. Elphaba is, is a very sympathetic and uh, complicated character. Uh, she and her witch friend, Galinda, they're actually friends. Um, they're roommates at witch school. Uh, now, over the course of their friendship, I'm describing this play horribly. You're not interested in seeing it at all, I'm sure, but it's actually very, very good. But over the course of their friendship, they grow as people. They grow better. They learn from each other what it means to be good. A good witch, not a wicked one. And of course, they sing about it in one of the show's more memorable numbers. And I heard the song first a long time ago, and the lyrics have always stuck with me. The, the point of the song is that people can change. People can actually be transformed. But how do people change? How do people like you and I, how do wicked witches like you and I change? We change by experiencing the goodness of others, by living in relationship with people who are genuinely good. Now, the problem, you know, with the show is that these are, like, fundamentally wicked people getting to know each other. They're just going to exchange wickedness. But that's the opportunity available for us as God's people. We get to live in relationship with the goodest, most powerful being in the history, history, in existence. And that's my invitation to you this morning. If you want to be good, I mean, everyone wants to be a good person at least a little bit. But if you want to be good, get to know Jesus. If you're sick of living with your own wickedness, get to know Jesus. If you're sick of being a sinner, get to know Jesus. Get to know how much he loves you. Get to know what he did on the cross for your sin. Get to know him. He can change you, and he can change you for good. Al and Julie are going to come up and share that song with you afterwards. I'll come back up, and we'll pray, and we'll worship.
we know that's true, that those of us who have experienced uh, change and those of us who maybe look a little bit more like Jesus, it's because uh, we got to know him or more specifically, you got to know us 
You got to know us through Christ. You made a way for us to get to know you through Christ. I thank you that any, any ounce of goodness in me, any ounce of love, sacrifice, service, self-control, you made it possible by getting to know me, by revealing yourself to me and, and living with me and being with me, staying connected with me through your spirit. You are my friend. You are my Lord. You are my father. And if I've changed it all, which I know I have, I've seen me in my worst moments and I've seen some of my better ones, but they're all because I knew you. And I pray that I can continue growing in relationship to you and that the change uh, that you've wrought in me, that you change me for good, for good forever. And I pray that for anybody here this morning, sick of their wicked ways, they might not do anything horrifically evil, like cast spells, but they ignore loved ones. They say harsh words. They make lazy, irresponsible decisions. We all do. And we're all deserving of your wrath. We're all going to be flooded. But you made a way. You made a way for us to be forgiven. You made a way for us to be changed. It's by living in relationship with your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for meeting us here this morning. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to worship you. We do not deserve it. And yet you opened your doors to us one once again. We pray this thing in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.